Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Perhaps allegedly insolvent or perhaps the perception was insolvency. Yeah. And way back when I first saw Mary Poppins and there was a run at the bank, it's always struck me that bank runs are largely psychological. This is Tom Fox. Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. In this episode, myself and my colleague, Matt Kelly, my co-host, I should say, take a deep dive into the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, some of the causes, the social media-led contagion, and what it may all mean for the compliance professional going forward in 2023. I know you'll enjoy this episode. It's a hot topic that we're able to dissect for you. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. First, quick message from our sponsor. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Matt Kelly for the award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds. Welcome back, Matt. Hello, Tom. Good to be here today. So, Matt, today I thought we might take up as topical subject as we can get without being breaking news, which is the bank collapse and attendant uh, outcome of the failure of SBV Bank in Silicon Valley. So, you want to set the stage for us? Sure. In fact, you're you're right that if we had recorded this just a couple of hours earlier while the markets were still open, it still might have been breaking news. We This is an event that is moving very quickly. And I liked how you paused to say the collapse of Silicon Bank and then its outcome, because we still don't even know exactly how to describe what the outcome is here. Did the federal government bail out the bank and Signature Bank, another bank in New York? What is going on? There's an awful lot that's to discuss here. So what really happened was this is a bank, a large business-oriented bank based out in Santa Clara, California. Silicon Bank has been around for about 40 years, had about $200 billion in assets, if I am remembering correctly. So that would qualify it as a mid-sized bank. It is not a large bank like Citibank or JP Morgan or Bank of America. It is not a consumer-oriented bank like any of them or any of the community banks that listeners might use in your hometown. It is a bank with a lot of businesses as customers. That's going to be important. But really, it had a bank run. The investor, the customers of the world of Silicon Bank, SVB, they decided last week they got scared that SVP was maybe going to collapse. So they started pulling the money out of SVB, which made it more likely to collapse. Tom, the the one paragraph summary of what the history of SVB is this, is that for many, many years in the last decade, They issued a lot of loan products at very low interest rates because interest rates had been low throughout the 2010s. 
Then, within the last year or so, as the Federal Reserve raised interest rates, SVB had to raise the interest rates it paid out to customers on its savings accounts. So those loans were bringing in maybe 2 or 3% interest, but SVP had to be paying out interest rates that might be more at 4%. And that difference is what undermined the capital structure and the balance sheet of SVB until people started getting skittish. And then they said, oh, geez, maybe I should pull my money out, which made the bank even more weak. So people got even more skittish. And then they said, oh, geez, even more of us should pull our money out. And very quickly, the bank collapsed on Friday. The big issue, and this is why the business customer angle is important, is that under FDIC rules, a bank's deposits are insured up to $250,000 per account. And for consumers, that's fine. I don't have more than 250000 sitting in a savings account. Most people don't. But if you're a business, like a Silicon Valley startup, you might easily have several million sitting in that bank account. And now it's only insured up to two hundred and fifty grand. That means you can't make payroll. You can't maybe deliver services to other customers. Right? You know, and then, then the contagion starts to spread. And so that was the fear that gripped everybody this weekend. So the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and the Treasury Department came up with this kind of sort of bailout. I'm not quite sure what it is. As you said, Tom, it's an outcome where they are guaranteeing the value of those Silicon Valley Bank assets for a year while trying to sell those assets somewhere else. And that will guarantee everybody's holdings for at least 12 months. What happens at the end of 12 months if these assets can't be sold? Who would cover those losses? I'm going to guess it's the taxpayer, and maybe we would forget about it. Maybe they'll sell the assets to another bank in between. It's kind of a weird thing, but the depositors are fully insured now for all of their millions, so they can make payroll. It's done through this lending facility the Fed has. And even as we speak, there's a big debate happening at this very moment, Tom, about is this a bailout or is it not a bailout? Because what is the Fed doing? Where is this money coming from? Don't the taxpayers ultimately fund it? But it's not a bailout like we saw in 2008. So it's a whole great big mess. And if you are a banking regulatory person, your head is probably spinning these days, and it will probably continue to spin for a while yet. So I guess the most, most because there's a lot of mosts in this matter that warrant consideration, but one of the things was the basic economics of what caused this bank to fail. And as you said, when interest rates went up, the spread became too great and the bank became insolvent or perhaps allegedly insolvent or perhaps the perception was insolvency. Yeah. And way back when I first saw Mary Poppins and there was a run at the bank, um, it it's always struck me that bank runs are largely psychological. And that may be for a variety of reasons, but here this was clearly psychological and once people got wind that they couldn't get their, weren't going to be able to get their money out, they got their money out. And uh, we still have that sort of mentality from the 19th century about banking, even with the federal backstops you mentioned. I guess the, so the crowd psychology played a huge part here. The other part was, I'm going to have to turn to the article because in today's deal book, Andrew Ross Sorkin really opined that. Banking is now 
a fully and officially government-backed business. And so is it a business if you can never fail? This was not too big to fail. This was, we're not going to let anybody fail. As you said, this was a mid-level bank, and it was not a consumer bank. It was a business bank. And uh, I'm reluctant to use the word contagion, but the outcomes, possible outcomes from a failure of SVB were also reported in the New York Times as a company, an Indian company, which has 7.7 million in accounts with SVB. And when you start to think about the inherent nature of risk and how far down the chain that might go, it really struck me in a very different way than I thought about the failure of consumer banks, particularly around the 08 timeframe. You may not know where your key suppliers or your key customers or your key third parties are banking. Maybe you have that information, but does that mean you're going to have to assess the financial health of those financial institutions of your customers to know if they're going to be able to pay you, uh, of your vendors or third-party suppliers to know if they can meet their payroll to deliver their services? Uh, and that, of course, led to some thoughts on risk management, and that got me to compliance. So really, for our listeners, we're going to get there. Maybe start with the federal government's response, because the thing Sorkin raised in his article is this really puts a regulatory clamp on all financial institutions that are out literally in the open market now. If the Fed and the FDIC and the OCC and I'm sure other alphabet agencies are going to step in to backstop whatever the mechanism was. Well, there's a lot to unpack in that question there, Tom. I think, you know, well, first, we should be honest for all listeners that the lessons here that are directly relevant, say, for ethics and compliance programs, they might not be many. There's not much here that will help you understand, you know, the good elements of an effective ethics and compliance program by Justice Department guidance. We're taking a bit of a detour this week to talk more about risk management and regulatory policy, which will indirectly wind up affecting a lot of companies. But- you are right, Tom, that there is a certain challenge here that I don't think the federal government has fully been able to solve yet. I think one open question for businesses, and let's say it's mostly smaller businesses that might wind up you know, working with a bank like SVB, you might say something like, well, I've got $11 million in venture funding. Where am I supposed to put it? Am I supposed to put it in 44 different banks at $250,000 each? Because that makes no sense. Well, yes and no. First off, you could put your money in a larger bank because if you look at the JP Morgans and uh, the Citigroups and Bank of America and even Wells Fargo for all of its dysfunction, like Wells Fargo is not going to go under. All of those banks now operate under much tighter stress tests thanks to the Dodd-Frank Act. So the larger banks are fine. You could put your money there. You could have audited your cash management processes to think about, well, you know, how could we make sure that we have spread our wealth that we do have among multiple institutions to avoid any single one failing on us and leaving us, you know, paralyzed? You could do that. There are various vehicles and ways. Uh, one is called brokered deposits, or you could decide we'll have three months of operating expenses in Bank B. And the $11 million will go to our primary bank and Bank A, but maybe that's going to be a large bank, not a mid-sized bank. There are ways to do this. And that, I think, is one point here for risk managers. 
you know, we talk all the time about you don't know necessarily where your supply risks might suddenly blow up. Well, you figure that out by looking at your most important vendor relations. And really, that's almost always going to be your bank or your bank is going to be right up there in that first tier with all your other most important vendor relations. And then think about how could that happen? How could it not? It's worth noting that some of the customers of Silicon Valley Bank, these are not small businesses. Some of them make a billion in revenue every year. And in that case, no, I'm not sympathetic to you. You do have the financial acumen and the sophistication to be able to pick and choose a bank and do a more careful analysis of its stability and its liquidity. If you can't do that and you're a billion dollar a year business, like get a new CFO and get a new treasurer because those are basic abilities at that level. Now, if you're a startup and you've just closed your Series A and you have 3 million in the bank and you have 11 employees, I'm more sympathetic to you. But that's not all SVB customers. Some of them were very large and we have essentially just guaranteed that uh, you know their assets or their deposits will always be there by having this guarantee that SVB's assets are going to be worth what they said. And if they're not, then I guess the Fed is going to cover that in 12 months based on its this lending facility that it has. Um, you know, another point that we need to think about here, Tom, is what are the inherent weaknesses of the financial system today after the Dodd-Frank Act? So we had all of these bank failures in 2008. Dodd-Frank Act comes along in 2010, and it established annual stress tests for banks. And large banks go through this every year. They try and model how strong they would be under various economic conditions. What if unemployment were sky high? What if real estate market prices dropped 20%, things like that. The large banks are still subject to that. But in 2018, Congress and the Trump administration, they changed the Dodd-Frank Act to eliminate those stress tests for mid-sized banks. Now, think about what that meant. It meant that the risks to the financial system weren't that the large banks would crash. The risk was that multiple mid-sized banks might crash at the same time. And would that be worse than any single large bank crashing? That's what we're going to go. That's what we're doing right now. We already had one mid-sized bank crash. We had Signature Bank in New York, which lends mostly to crypto people. They also were closed this over the weekend because of that. They are another mid-sized bank. There are several other mid-sized banks that have been hammered lately because they have these assets on their balance sheet that were issued during the low interest rate era. And now are they worth what people actually are they do people believe those assets are still worth what the banks are listing them as worth in their quarterly reports? Because if you have a whole bunch of loans bringing in 2% interest and you're paying out 4% on your savings accounts, then the income you get as a bank from your assets is not enough to service the liabilities you have on the savings accounts you offer. That's the fundamental dysfunction here. What are we supposed to do about it? Elizabeth Warren, Democrat from Massachusetts, architect of the Dodd-Frank Act, and vociferous critic of big banks, she already has an article in the New York Times that was published today that basically says, people, I effing told you this was going to happen because in 2018, they weakened the Dodd-Frank Act, which she disagreed with vociferously, as always. And she said that that was going to create a risk in mid-sized banks. And now we have it here in the mid-sized banks. Um, I'm not quite sure 
what the proper response here is. It's worth noting that we have had big banks go under in the past after the Dodd-Frank Act. I'm willing to bet most people don't even know that once upon a time in the early 2010s, there was a large bank called CIT, and it went bankrupt. And last time I checked, the world did not collapse in the early 2010s. It collapsed in 2008. And then we let the big bank fail and CIT kind of just expired. And like, oh, well, all right. And it worked. So there is something to be said for implementing these stress tests, having very strict bank supervision. We can get into where were the supervisors for SVP in, in a moment. And if you do what Elizabeth Warren said, perhaps in some other parallel universe, this didn't happen. And I wonder what the banking situation is like in that other parallel world today. It's probably more stable and less neurotic than we all are right now. And so I would like to pick up on the change in regulatory oversight instituted by the Trump administration and tie it to the Norfolk Southern derailment in Ohio, because here we frankly have two catastrophic failures in two separate industries because of idiotic and not thought out at all regulatory alleged reform, which was basically deregulating and let companies put things, people at risk in a way that they hadn't been put at risk under prior regulatory regimes. Those regulations were in place to protect people, whether it's life, limb, or property at banks. And I think this really shows, number one, the idiocy of the Trump administration and their rule regulatory reforms. And number two, it's almost laughable that the people crying the loudest for the ease up in regulations at SVB, SVB were the libertarians in the tech industry who just as loudly screamed to bail us out over the weekend to the federal government. So quite a bit of inconsistency there. But the regulatory oversight, I think, needs to be thought through in a more robust manner. Yes, you can have more regulations, or yes, you can have less regulations. But what we're not seeing, or what we haven't seen in these two instances, is any type of assessment of what could happen uh, from a failure. But Matt, you started to touch on the regulators themselves. Any thoughts on the regulatory oversight that was or was not utilized in this manner? Well, there are two other groups here that need some attention. You're right. And one of them is, first off, the regulators themselves, the actual people who were examining Silicon Valley Bank. For example, the idea that you might have this interest rate gap and your loan assets are not bringing in enough to cover your savings account interest expense liabilities, like that is not new. That is not unique to Silicon Valley Bank. Lots of banks do have these assets on their balance sheet right now. That's why we're panicking and wondering if the contagion will spread. Now, it may well be that it doesn't spread because lots of banks also, at the same time, hedge their interest rate exposure, which Silicon Valley did not do. So if I were a bank examiner, I would be wondering, well, why are you not? And I would perhaps be more forceful with them to really explain and defend their logic there. So I, for one, am not sure that this is going to be a wildfire contagion across mid-range banks. I might be wrong. I hope I am not wrong. But most banks could see this coming. Most banks have hedged against this sort of a thing. Silicon Valley Bank did not. So yet again, we should be asking, well, where were the banking regulators, the examiners specifically at the San Francisco Fed would have been the ones looking at them. 
Worth noting that the first regulator to blow the whistle on Silicon Valley Bank and you know declare that the game is over, that was California state regulators. Likewise, for the other bank that also went belly up over the weekend, Signature Bank, the first regulators to blow the whistle on that play and call it over were New York state regulators. But why were the regulators or the bank examiners not raising more questions at the time, or perhaps you know, basically, why was Silicon Bank not hedging its interest rate exposure to the level it should have? Uh, that is going to be a question. We have to think about where were these regulators? What was Silicon Bank executive team thinking as they did this? Fun fact, the chief risk officer at Silicon Valley Bank quit the job eight months ago, and that job had been vacant for eight months. Now, this is a critical role at a bank. It should not have been left vacant, and yet it was. Well, that's the responsibility of Silicon Bank's board and Silicon Valley's CEO. They are the ones who hire the C-level executives and who are in charge of risk management. And they left the CRO position open. Not good. But, Tom, the other interesting point I want to raise here is the rapidity with which this bank run happened at Silicon Valley Bank last week. One question that has been raised is how much did the depositors and the venture capitalists who were customers of Silicon Valley, how much did they talk among themselves, either on Slack or on Twitter in front of everybody or on private text messages to say, we got to get out, we got to get out, I'm getting out now, when are you getting out? You know, And also, they would get out by opening up a fintech app and executing a wire transfer or something like that right there from their phone, wherever they are, getting their avocado toast or they're on a ski trip up in Montana or who knows what. So how much has social media and fintech apps, how much has that accelerated the panic that can take root in a bank run? Because let's remember, during the global financial crisis, 2008, Twitter had barely existed. The iPhone had barely existed. Fintech apps had barely existed. All of these third-party cloud-based tech providers in fintech, they really weren't there, and now they are here. So I do have this question about whether the Silicon Valley tech bros out there you know, kind of just decided among themselves, we're going to do a bank run and we're going to get out. And then did this even lead to them saying, if we do this, if enough of us do this, they'll bail out the bank and then we'll get all of our deposits back. Tom, you and I last year, we talked about that GameStop meme stock craze where basically a bunch of day traders poured their money into GameStop, GameStop, which was a dysfunctional company to say the least, and kind of executed a short squeeze against all of the people who said the, the bank was, that GameStop was a terrible stock. And you know we had this back and forth happening on social media. Was that insider trading or was it not? How is it insider trading if they're trading on the outside? All this, it's the same dynamic applied to banks. And this time, I guess the target is the Fed or the FDIC. Did they engage in this social media panic, trying to fuel the flames to get the regulators to agree to a bailout? I think that's an important question that we need to discuss here. But that's another big issue is how will social media pressures affect financial stability of either the system as a whole or specific companies? And how does the company factor that in and, and resist it? I don't know what the answer is, but I think that's definitely a question we have to consider. 
Well, I have three responses. First of all, it is another joy to see the return of Conspiracy Matt. We haven't seen Conspiracy Matt in some time. It's good to know he still exists and can come out at the most propitious time. Number two, you have consistently said that social media amplifies the messages of its users. But perhaps we now need to add another word, which is the speed. Uh, perhaps amplification of speed. Nevertheless, with these apps and the communications tools, we could have a speed dynamic to social media. Number three, I'm still seeing Mary Poppins. Give me my money. Somebody yelling at the top of their lungs and the person next to them saying, the bank won't give them their money. We better get ours. Well, Tom, I would just, I want to go back and talk a bit more about this social media pressure here, because already today, there is now speculation among bank analysts that the Federal Reserve is going to pause its interest rate hikes to fight inflation or might even decide to cut its interest rates. Now, let's think about what has really happened here. If it is the case that a bunch of Silicon Valley tech bros have all decided in unison, thanks to social media, to do a run on Silicon Valley Bank and compel the feds to basically bail out their deposits and to make the Federal Reserve pause its interest rate hikes, which are there to fight inflation, which has still not yet gone away, really, they executed a short squeeze against the Fed and they got away with it, if that's what it, this will be if the Fed stops raising interest rates. Now, that is not okay. That is a terrible way to run monetary policy that are we all supposed to live with maybe higher rates of inflation because we don't want to jeopardize the bank stability of that is you know underwriting a bunch of technology firms out in Silicon Valley Bank? I'm not a Silicon Valley Bank customer. I don't engage in these reckless practices like Silicon Valley Bank apparently did. Why am I supposed to be paying more for prices and tolerating a higher rate of inflation because the Fed is scared of offending a bunch of bankers or a bunch of banks or bank customers who are conspiring right in plain view on social media that we all have to get our money out, even if it destabilizes the bank, the worst that will happen is they'll bail us out anyways. Or if they don't, we're just going to pull out even more money. Like, we need to figure that out. I don't envy Jerome Powell the task of figuring that out. But it is something that is not going to go away anytime soon. That, I think, is the perfect cherry to end this lovely chocolate sundae on. Well done. <laughs> and Let's... we didn't even get to the enforcement stuff, Tom. There's going to be more of that to talk about later on. All right. Well done, Matt. Thank you, Tom. This is Tom Fox again. I'm pleased to announce that Compliance Into the Weeds won a 2022 Communicators Award in two categories for the best co-host and for best business podcast. So thanks to all of our listeners who supported us for the Communicator Awards. I hope you will join Matt and I again next week where we take another deep dive into the compliance weeds. Finally, if you've thought about starting your own podcast, please contact me. I'd love to help you either uh, help you produce your podcast or put you on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Tom Fox. The award-winning Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.